from Nashville, Tennessee, welcome to Music City 911. I'm your host, Brandon Hall, and sitting in with me tonight, returning guest, Brett Sharp. How you doing, Brett? It's good to be back. Didn't think it'd be so quick, but the world has changed a lot in the two or three months it's been. Yeah, it, it really has, and that's that's a good good point with the way it's been changing and everything like that. It's um, It's just a really different time, and I'm glad things are finally starting to open back up and everything, but it's still limited everything. I think the, I've seen the phrase, the new way of the world more than a, a few times, and I think that's probably going to be true. Yeah, mo- most definitely. Um, the last time I was on here, we were talking about the tornado, and that kind of kicked off the end of the world, it seems, because after that, it just went downhill from there quickly. Yeah, and, and that's that's one of the things, like every other city that's out there, Y'all just got a hold of the the coronavirus thing, and that's all you had. We actually had the tornado right before all this even started, so it's uh, it, we got hit doubly hard in Nashville. It was it's really bad. So anyway, tonight we're going to do a, a kind of a special episode. It's a little bit different than what we've done in the past. Uh, tonight we're going to do a, a story episode, just stories of our past. I've asked on a couple different social media sites to get a couple stories as well from other dispatchers from different places. And, uh, and I'll share some of mine. Brett, he's got a couple from actually within the past week that he can share that are really good. You know, some of them are good. Some of them are pretty terrible. Um, it, it'll just kind of give you an idea of what, uh, you know, we really do for a living and, and some of the stuff we actually have to take a call on. Uh, we're not going to be taking, we're not going to be playing any 911 calls tonight. This is a story episode only, so it's going to be just us, but I guarantee you some of the stories we've got, they're they're kind of shocking. So anyway, um, I guess I'll go ahead and lead it off, uh, and I'll start us off with the – this is a, a really, really shocking story uh, that I've had from my past. Um, this was probably, I'd say, around 2003, maybe 2004. Um, I took the phone call about this, and it, it wasn't just the phone call itself. It, it went all on past there. So just like normal, I was on second shift. Uh, it was, I'd probably say around six o'clock in the afternoon, something like that. And phone rings, I pick it up, go through my normal stuff. And, um, the, the person that's on the, the other end of the line, I could barely understand what he's saying. His, his speech is really slurred. He's, uh, kind of, uh, his voice is, it's almost sounds like he's gurgling a little bit. And, I finally figure out once he tells me a couple times because it it was that hard to understand him that he had shot himself and he had shot himself in the head. So this guy, what he did apparently was he took the gun and he put it in his mouth and pulled the trigger. But instead of pointing it straight back, he pointed it out the side of his, his face and it, you know, unfortunately blew the side of his face off. So he was bleeding. He had blood running down the, the back of his throat. He was having trouble breathing just all kinds of things you would have from a gunshot wound, a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head that didn't kill you. So it, it was a really, really bad call just from that itself. I stayed on the phone with him, got an ambulance started. Um, he was, you know, I won't say he was in and out of consciousness, but he was he was having trouble with just everything. I mean, it, as you could imagine, for something like that that would happen. The fire department and the ambulance finally got out on the scene police department showed up as well and uh, they loaded him up in the back of the ambulance and got on their way now this is right after uh, a local hospital here skyline 
it was, uh, and this all happened kind of in the Madison area. It's a kind of a North end of Nashville, uh, nice little area. Um, just kind of a, I don't know, I'd say it's about 15, 20 minutes away from downtown. Um, but you know, decent little place. Uh, we've got our, it's got its own share of crime, things like that. And stolen bicycles, people pushing them down the road and lots of stray cats, that type thing. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so they load them up in the ambulance and they start driving down, they get on the interstate and they're going highway speeds, probably 80, 85 miles an hour, something along that lines. And the guy that had originally wanted to kill himself that, you know, wanted help afterwards, I guess it finally hit him that he's going to the hospital and he's not going to die. He didn't like that at all. So he got up from the gurney they had him on, unbuckled himself, opened the back of the ambulance, and jumped out. And, you know, from that, I mean, that's that's enough to kill somebody right there, jumping out of the back of the ambulance at, on the interstate at 80, 85 miles an hour. That wasn't quite enough, though. Three cars ended up running over him. I mean, completely over top of him. So the police and paramedics, they stopped. They had to circle back around to get back up to him. And, uh, you know, I was thinking, oh, my God, this this guy finally, he, he actually did himself in. This is really, really terrible. Um, that not only has this guy shot himself, had a moment of, you know, I guess clarity that he maybe wanted to live and, and decided he, you know, call the police and, you know, get an ambulance to go down to the hospital. And then he changed his mind. So he's shot himself in the side of the face, jumped out of an ambulance at 80 to 85 miles an hour on the concrete of the interstate, three cars run over him. And I remember I was sitting in the back of the place, uh, the back of the call center. And I look up the front to buddy of mine. who's not with us anymore. He passed away several years ago, a guy named John. And he stood up and he gave a thumbs up and I'm looking at him. I said, what do you mean? He goes, what's the thumbs up? He goes, they got a pulse. So this guy doing all this still lived through all that. I mean, it's, uh, I don't know if this was like a relative of like Keith Richards from the Rolling Stones <laughs> or what, that you just can't kill him or what. I don't know. But it's, uh, it, it was a terrible story, but also to me and a lot of the people up there, just the way that it happened, it's a little bit funny that this guy tried so hard and couldn't kill himself. They ended up getting into the hospital after that. Now, once they got there, he he may have passed away. I don't know. I uh, I didn't hear anything. We don't usually get the updates in, inside the hospital for stuff like that. But you know, he may have passed away later on. But at least in that moment, he was still alive. So I I was just shocked and amazed that that even happened in the first place like that. So I mean, that's really something else. Something I've become to realize, especially recently, after a story I'll probably go into here in a little bit is everything happens for a reason. There's, I don't know what causes it, but there's something out there. Everything happens for a reason. So it was, it was not his day to die. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, I can't remember what comedian it was that, that I was listening to one time. He's like, you get these old men that, you know, they, they're at their end of their life and they're just, they're, they're wanting to be over with. And I'm like, Oh, well, I'd, yeah, I jumped out in front of a truck the other day and it just left me with a really bad limp. And, uh, you know, so I wanted to get rid of that too. So, you know, I went ahead and shot myself in the head. Now I got this terrible ringing in my ear. <laughs> so yeah, I guess that's that's got to be one of the things that you just can't. You know, if it's not destined to happen, it's just not going to happen. And stuff like that, uh, 
failed suicide attempts. It's stuff I've I've taken before and quite a few times. And unfortunately, a lot most of the times they were completed, so I, you know they didn't make it. But there's been a few times that their attempted suicide is not successful. Yeah, I've haven't had any of failed the suicide attempt calls that I can recall off the top of my head. But this year, back in February, during a four-hour phone period. I took three self-inflicted gunshot wounds, all completely different, different part of town, not related to each other at all. Yeah. And it was, it just got to the point where the next call, I'm like, all right, here's another one. Let's see what this one's going to be. Yeah, no kidding. It's, it's terrible sometimes when you, you have that. And, you know, it's, and granted, I, I don't know what the, the parameters, whatever happened with yours uh, were, but with me, I've had, and I'm sure you've been there for a few years now. You've probably had one of these by now, but. Uh, somebody that calls in and they just say, you know, that I'm I'm going to kill myself, and they do it while they're on the phone with you. I have not had one of those. That was in training. They warned us about those calls, and they told you there's nothing you can do to when these people call in. The only reason they're calling is just so somebody finds them that's not their family. Yeah. And it was always kind of in the back of my head that, you know, one day I'm probably going to get one of those, and I don't know how I'm going to react, but that's that's one of the worst calls we can take, I think. Yeah, that's uh, I've I've had a few of those. Um, the last one. Is it the last one I'm thinking? I, I can't remember there because, you know, I, I've said before that I've probably taken literally hundreds of thousands of calls at the time I've been there. Um, but as far as those type of calls, the one that kind of stands out to me uh, just because it was more recent is in the past couple of years, uh, a woman called me. And I, I, I've kind of briefly mentioned this on one of the episodes in the past that she called me up and, and she says, you know, my name is so-and-so. I live at this address. And I'm going to kill myself. Um, she said, you know, and at, at that point I, I start trying to say, well, ma'am, no, you, you don't have to do that. And trying to, you know, work my way around it to where maybe she'll not do it. But it's with the wording that she used, I knew that she was going to, there was nothing I could do. And that's something else we've discussed in the past with suicidal callers. Some people are just wanting help. Some people are going to kill themselves and there's nothing you can do about it. And, you know, while the call still rings in my head, I, I still remember it very well. I don't have any type of self-guilt or anything like that for not being able to help the woman because I knew that was what she was going to do. There was nobody that could help her in any way. But she says, you know, I'm going to kill myself. And, you know, she gives me all the info. And then she sets the phone down, didn't hang it up. And then I, uh, a couple seconds later, I hear a gunshot. And I stayed on the phone just in case. Uh, obviously from the first call that I talked about that maybe she didn't do it correctly or anything like that. So I'm still trying to get her on the phone just in case. And I hear the police on the phone show up on the scene and I hear them um, get on the radio and say, you know, I'm here. I've got one self-inflicted to the head and uh, she looks like she's code four, which means uh, dead on the scene. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really rough. They, they do kind of stick with you, but at the same time, you know, there's nothing you can do. So, I mean, I, I don't feel bad about that part at all. I feel bad for her and what kind of stuff that she was going through. But at the same time for me as a, as an employee doing this, I, I don't feel bad for myself that it happened. It just, it's one of those, like many other calls that just sit with you. They don't go away. That's I'll probably remember that the rest of my life. So there's a couple of stories that I've done. Uh, Brett, uh, what did you want to lead off with uh, in the story department here? I'll keep along with the same subject we were going with the, uh, you know, kind of suicidal callers thing. When I was talking about those three to four gunshot wound calls I had in one shift, one of those calls, 
it kind of stuck with me because called in, I think it was a female. She was absolutely hysterical. I think I might have gotten the address out of her. And then they kept passing the phone around. There was multiple people on scene. And somebody eventually told me that somebody was injured at some point. I don't think they said shot. I don't think anything like that. But I don't know how any of these people relate. I don't know if they were neighbors, family members, how it was. But they kept passing the phone around. They eventually gave it to this one guy who was kind of the voice of reason. He told me he confirmed the address with me. And he's like, this guy's covered in blood. I think he's been shot. I just heard a gunshot, and I came over to check on him. So I was like, I understand. I need somebody to go in there and check on him. Let me know what we got. So he goes in there, and he's he says, yeah, he, he looks like he's dead. You know, it, there's a gun next to him. He's probably shot himself. So get out there. You know, the police medics, they confirm it and everything. He's, he's deceased. The next day, the same voice of reason called back in, got me. And he said, I need an escort to my apartment. And at this time, I didn't really put two and two together. He gave me the address. I realized it was the same complex, but it's not uncommon. It's an apartment complex. We get a lot of calls there. Yeah. And then he says, yesterday, my neighbor shot himself, and his family thinks that I shot him. So he just went over there to help, and somehow they're blaming him because they couldn't believe that their family member had killed themselves. Wow. So now this guy's getting threats and everything, has to move out of his apartment because these people don't believe him. And I was like, I told him, I was like, I was on the phone with you the whole time. I was like, it's just one of those crazy things where, you know, he thought he was helping and, yeah, you know, put his life in danger to help somebody and then they come after him for it. Yeah, that's that's pretty insane. And, and that actually, you know, just talking stories because that's all we're doing here tonight. Just that with the whole family thing, it reminded me of something else that has uh, happened in the past. Um, I wasn't actually the the dispatcher that was on this this case. I was, um, I think I was probably sitting next to this person when it happened. But um, so a code five thousand is an officer in distress. That's when you know an officer gets shot. He's fighting with somebody. Uh, maybe he had to shoot somebody or you know fight with them. Just. Anything along that lines, if he's in distress in any way, that we put out a code 5,000. And when we put out a code 5,000, everybody goes to it. And actually, I mean, I'm not a police officer, but I think I, one of my officer friends told me one time that if you're available anywhere in the county, when a code 5,000 goes out, you're supposed to check and route to it until uh, there's, you know, the situation is de-escalated. Um, but anyway, <clears throat> this one, it was it was over and done with really quick. Uh, I heard the code 5,000 go out, uh, from, uh, like I said, a neighboring dispatcher, they put it out on all airs, which means they, they took each one of our, uh, radios. So essentially like Nashville's broken down to each one of the precincts has a radio for themselves. And back then we didn't have as many as we do now, but you take all airs, you're on everybody's radio and you do that for emergency calls. Uh, that way, if there's any neighboring, uh, sector or something like that has somebody close, they can check and route to it. For this, a code 5000, you check and route to it. Well, what had happened was there was a um, a traffic officer we had, and he was, and this this was midnight shift too. He was uh, out working, pretty sure it was Briley Parkway where it happened at, which is a kind of a, it's not really an interstate system. Uh, it's more of a in county, it goes around Nashville. It was originally made to be kind of like an interstate that's just an inner city type interstate where it's a controlled access roadway where you can only get on and off at the exits. But um, it was supposed to circle the city, but it's only controlled access in a few points. But there was somebody speeding, 
and the officer, you know, saw it happen. He pulled him over and got out of the car and went over, uh, talked to him for a little bit. And from what I've gathered, uh, between just the dispatcher and hearing accounts from the officer himself and things like that, that essentially he, um, he walked up to the front of the car just to check a couple things on the front, I guess, inspecting or whatever like that. And the guy inside tried to take off. And when he did that was, uh, the officer was in front of the vehicle and was going to run him over. So the officer pulled out his gun and ended up shooting the guy through the windshield because he tried to run him over. I mean, it's, it ended up being a justified shoot. The, the way that this whole thing ties into what you were saying about family and being confused and things like that is that after this happened, the family got on the news and were, was saying, you know, my, my boy was, he was a, he was a great boy. He never did anything wrong at all. And he's, um, there's no reason for him to get shot. Well, all this was on dash cam. Um, there's, uh, lots of accounts of it happening. It, it was very cut and dry that it should have, I won't say should have happened, but it, it happened and it was justified. But the, the, the a couple things about it is that they found $10,000 worth of cash in the car, two kilos of Coke, I think it was. I believe it was two kilos of cocaine inside there with him. And his arrest history was more than extensive. Violent arrests, uh, assaults, various drug issues, things like that. He had been in and out of jail and prison more than a few times. And his family you know, obviously distraught about what happened. I mean, I, I understand that part, but they, they were full on saying that, you know, he was a good kid and he, he never did anything wrong, which it was just a flat out lie. He was a bad person in general. Right. It, and I understand that everybody has a different, you know, everybody sees their family members a little different, but you've got to be realistic when something like that happens and everybody wants to pass the blame around, but Sometimes people just have to take responsibility for their own actions, and when they're not here to do that, it's hard for people to accept. Yeah, it's it was a bad circumstance, and I don't like hearing anybody, no matter what happens. I, I mean, I don't want anybody get to get killed at all um, by each other, by police, anything like that. If you can do something to prevent it, you know, don't don't try to run over a police officer. Don't pull a gun out on somebody. Things like that. I mean, if we didn't have crime, obviously we'd be in a much better society, but we do. There are bad, evil people out there, and they they want to hurt you. They want to hurt people that will help people that are in need, just like police officers or firefighters. So, you know, it's it's not something I'd, I want to happen, but it, you know, unfortunately it does. So anyway, moving on from there, I've actually, uh, I ask on a couple of different social media sites uh, if, if any dispatchers from around the world had any type of stories or experiences they, they had, maybe something that involved a family member of theirs or friends or just really anything. So um, I, I got a few replies, and I'm not going to be able to read all of them, but the one that kind of stuck out with me um, as far as somebody that, you know, I, I don't know this person, I'm not going to give their name or their screen name or anything like that, and I'll try to read as, as well as I can because it's, it's kind of a lengthy story, but it's it's really a, a good one because um, it it hits home with me too. I, I feel the same way when things like this happen, and it, you just really kind of feel helpless. But I'll go ahead and start reading. So it says that I haven't taken a call from a family member or friend, but once I was in a bar and I got to chatting with a girl, and she asked me what I did for a living, and I told her where I worked, and she told me she had actually a bad experience with nine one one with the jurisdiction that he worked in specifically. I asked her about it and she told me a story about how she had a really abusive boyfriend 
got in a fight one night and called 911 where he was very aggressive and and she locked herself in the bathroom. She talked about him banging on the door and threatening to beat her and how she was terrified for her life. So she then called 911 and said the dispatcher sounded indifferent, annoyed, maybe bored. And it was 30 to 40 minutes before dispatch called her back saying an officer was on the scene looking for her. And uh, she had apparently left the scene at that point uh, trying to escape. And she did. And she, uh, I guess in this jurisdiction, you can cancel on a domestic domestic call in Nashville. You can't cancel on something like that. So, but anyway, they, they were able to cancel the call. And she talked to me about how she was really destroyed and that she had this long-term abusive relationship and uh, that she finally worked up the courage to call the police and was met with that type of response. It was a slow response and uh, on 911, somebody that sounded indifferent and not really, I guess, probably not really caring. She said she was uh, felt like she was trying desperately to convey to the dispatcher how serious the situation was and that she, as the minutes ticked by, she started to realize that no one was coming and that she was completely alone. She talked about how in hindsight she realized that she was probably talking to an employee who was overworked in an understaffed environment. And that was probably the reason uh, she was met with the response that she got. Uh, She did thank this, uh, this person for talking to her about it and said she actually felt good to talk to her, uh, to this person and could tell that the, the dispatcher she was talking to at the bar really cared and if she had gotten him on the phone, that maybe it had gone differently. For me, and getting into the next part of uh, this guy's story, this is how it kind of gets home. I'll talk about it here in a second. But uh, but things like uh, this, would they have gone different? He says, though I'm very genuine and a caring person, how many of my callers would have said the same thing about me? Maybe most of them. How many basic dispute calls have a caller where I sound attached and routine where a caller is repeating over and over again, how serious the situation is. And I give them a yes, ma'am, we've got the call. We're going to get them out to you with annoyance in my voice because I've already sent your call over and I need to get off the phone because there's two people on hold. How many times have I been on dispatch and have had calls like this sitting on pending for 30, 40 minutes because I'm a, before I'm able to get anybody out there because officers are out on a person shot called or a expressway accident with injuries, or maybe there's just eight identical calls in my pending that day. And that call just had to wait. So this dispatcher that posted this said after the girl uh, left the bar, uh, the dispatcher ended up crying a little bit because he really felt sorry for, her and maybe even for what he or she, I'm not, I'm not sure if this is a male or female dispatcher, if, um, you know, just for what they may do to other people, as far as on the phone, I'll tell you right now that I'm, I'm guilty exactly of what they're talking about. And it's not necessarily because I don't care. It's because a lot of times we don't have time to do this in Nashville. And I'm sure in a lot of other cities, most cities, probably it's so busy on the phones for being understaffed or just the sheer amount of call volume coming in. We don't have time to do that because if if we have uh, say a fight or a domestic situation like he was talking about we just don't have the time to really take on the phone and and give that empathy and really push that through like we really need to 
because there's always a call holding behind them and it could be an emergency. This, this girl, it was potentially life threatening. Yes. Uh, on the, the one that he was talking about, but at the same time, it could, the, the next call coming in could be someone's grandmother having a heart attack or a knife sticking out of her back or any number of things, a, a fatal accident or near fatal accident to where you can actually help the person. So with the calls always being backed up and you're call to call to call, you kind of train yourself to get the information you need and send it up. And that's all you do. There's, there's no other time for talking. If it's a slower time, you have that, you know, a little bit of leeway, but it's, it's rare that those times are slow like that. So yes, I feel exactly like this person does too, that you want to have more time to, to care about each single caller. You just don't have it. And that's nothing against the dispatcher, the call taker, anything like that. It's just, it's the nature of the beast. I mean, I, I hate to say it like that, but just because of the call volume, you have to do it that way. There's no way of getting around it. But in saying that we do get the calls and try to send them out as fast as we can. And he mentioned something about the dispatch in having the calls hold for 30, 40 minutes. You know, that's also an unfortunate thing. There's, there's not an unlimited amount of officers to send out. So if they get locked into a call, say just like he was talking about, if there's a shooting or something like that, that's not something that just one single officer can handle. It takes multiple officers to canvas the area do the questions to all the, you know, potential witnesses, things like that. Multiple officers have to be out there and that ties up resources that could be going to a woman that's maybe being beat up by her husband and there's just no officers to send. So that call has to sit in pending, you know, holding for a little while. And it's, it's not easy to see. I, I hate seeing calls like that, but there's nothing dispatch can do about it. I mean, I, a lot of us, sometimes we wish we could go out there and help ourselves, but we just simply can't do it. And so talking about things just like this, about being able to give a little bit of extra empathy and trying to identify with the caller that's that's on the phone with you, sometimes it is actually possible. Sometimes if you have a call that you have to stay on the phone with, some of them, a lot of them, you, in fact, most of them, you can get the information and get off the call. That's what you do. There are certain times, though, that you have to stay on the phone with somebody whether you're giving medical care or maybe it's a, a situation that is, is constantly evolving. Maybe you're on the phone with somebody that's been, been shot or stabbed or something like that. And you have to give instructions on how to stop the bleeding or, you know, just trying to keep them awake while the police and fire, uh, the ambulance are on the way out there to them. Brett, you've recently in the past couple of weeks taken a call just like that. That was a actually a really big deal. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Almost uh, eight days to the hour now, looking at the clock. Um, received a call from a woman who said that one of her family members had just been shot. So we go into the you know the address, phone number, basic information obtaining phase. I start asking my medical questions, and she mentions that this person is a police officer. So that changes the entire thing altogether. It goes from just being one of our routine shooting calls that we get way too many of on a daily basis as it is, so this is, you know, somebody that's kind of like a family member to us. Yeah, it, it moved up to the whole Code 5000 like we were talking about a while ago. Yeah, and that, and that applies even when they're off duty. Yeah. So um, once she says that, it's my next task is to kind of confirm, like, is he one of our officers? Is he a, another agency's officer? Is he a security guard? Because sometimes that'll get misconstrued, and that's not the same yeah. thing. 
So she confirms this is one of our officers here in Nashville who has been shot while he's off duty. So I get everybody started and I start going through the medical questions with her and she's like, I can't really answer these. So I'm going to give the phone to him. And I'm like, that's good. Cause I know I can talk to him, let him know everybody's coming. That'll get him calmed down and everything. And I can get the most accurate information that I need. Once I got him on the phone, he gave me a very good description of the suspect vehicle and kind of a brief rundown of what happened. And it was kind of disturbing because he hadn't had a confrontation with this person. The person just was sitting in a parking lot and they exchanged hellos and he shot him in the back. And so once I put that vehicle description out, it was a pretty unique vehicle and it was a gray Ford Flex. And if you don't know what those are, they're kind of like a crossover between a minivan and an SUV and they didn't make very many of them. And yeah, really boxy looking. Yeah, it's just not a popular vehicle. So within, I'd say, about five or ten minutes, an officer who is responding to the original call sees this vehicle, and they get into a vehicle pursuit with it. Meanwhile, nobody has gotten with the officer yet because he, the location he was at was at the outer ends of our county, and we had had the discussion that he's probably going to be a while, and you know it's just going to be the two of us for a little bit, and he knew that. And so we were doing all we could with the medical side. Meanwhile... They're now in a vehicle pursuit with the suspect. So two of our kind of higher priority incidents that we work were going on at once. Yeah. And um, so I, I knew it would give him some comfort. I let him know that they've got a possible suspect that they're chasing. So he wasn't worried about somebody coming back to get him because that was something he was worried about at the beginning is, you know, getting his gun and everything because he was just out walking his dog. And um, so that gave him some comfort, but he was still looking out. I think finally an officer got with him. I was able to hang up the phone and take a first deep breath I had in a while. And then the pursuit's still going on. They had several officers try to, you know, use spike strips to stop the vehicle. Every time they did that, he would open fire out the window at them. And so So he was was constantly shooting at the police while he was doing this pursuit as well. Yeah, it was, I think there were two or three instances where they tried to use spike strips and he had, you know, opened fire on the officers that were doing that. So it was... A very very dangerous situation and we still didn't know why any of this had happened there was no you know provocation that we knew of at that no time. reason it, it was just some random guy uh, you know sitting there whatever like that and he just decided he wanted to shoot somebody that night right and so the pursuit continues on um they did eventually hit him with some spike strips i believe and he ended up crashing on the side of one of our interstates and hopped out of the car and started firing at the officer's so three of our officers returned fire, and the suspect was pronounced deceased on the scene. So we will never get his version of what happened, and so it's kind of just a big unknown. Yeah, um, that happens, like I said, with the majority of our calls. We just don't know. Luckily, with this one, we knew at least the outcome of it. So we, you know, the, our police shot the suspect, and, you know, he was dead. But I, we may never know why he did this in the first place. I mean, it's it's kind of weird, and just like you said, it was out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I've read the news story on it and stuff like that, and you know, being as far out as it was, it really was. How long were you on the phone with him? We were on the phone for, it was close to 15 minutes before an officer got there, and for an ambulance to get there, it was at least a few more minutes, because they were a little further out. Yeah, they were a little further out, and plus the fact that usually, even on a call like this, because you don't really know they'll have the, the medics will stage to make sure that the police officer go inside and make sure everything's safe for them to go inside. So, I mean, that, that's just a, a huge call in the first place. And to be on the phone with somebody for 15 minutes that has been shot, that's incredible. I mean, it's, we, we've had stuff like that happen before in Nashville and it's unfortunate that it happened at all, but 
it does. And in this case, you know, it's, it's a good thing you're on the phone with him because you, you don't know. I mean, I, I've never been shot before. Um, you don't know what kind of emotions you're going to go through when you do get shot. And with this, with him, you know, I, I'm, I'm guessing that he, I guess he probably uh, held it together pretty well, didn't he? He definitely handled it pretty well. Like I said, he provided an excellent, you know, suspect vehicle description. We knew exactly what we were looking for. He told me what was going on, what was happening with him. And it was, you know, there's no delay in getting the information like there normally is in a shooting where there's a bunch of yelling going on and everything. He was very clear, calm. This is what I got. This is what happened. And so I was able to, you know, help him out from there. But being on the phone with him so long, it kind of used up all my emotional resources for for that. And I, I had about half an hour left in my shift, and I tried to go back on ready is what we call it, where you're sitting there waiting to get a phone call. And uh, I think I took maybe two or three calls after that, one of them being a medical call where the caller was pretty uncooperative and kind of rude. And uh, I didn't give it back to him or anything like that. But after the call, I kind of realized that I needed to I – was, I was done for the night. Like there was – I didn't need to be taking phone calls anymore because like we were saying earlier about empathy, I couldn't be empathetic with that person, even though they were having a legitimate medical emergency because of the call I had just taken was so much serious, so much more serious than the, what he was having. So I, I had to, you know, realize that and take myself out of it. And like I said, it was the end of my shift anyway. So it kind of worked out that way. Yeah. And you know, and that's one of the things sometimes with the end of the shift, I mean, you were lucky that, you know, you could actually you know, stop taking calls at that point. There's been times uh, with me, I've taken the, a call like that. The very first call of the day, you you get there and me being, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on first shift now, but it, it doesn't matter what shift you're on. It can happen any, at any point, you know, uh, but in, in first shift, a, a lot of the calls we take early in the morning are people that wake up and someone they live with is they've died overnight. You know, they're not breathing. This could be a elderly couple and a man finds his wife not breathing. This could be a mom that has a newborn child and has woke up and that child's not breathing. And you have to sit there and try CPR with them as much as you can and, and go through this while this person is having the worst time of their life. And that's your first call of the day. You start out the day on that really serious down note and you still have to sit there the rest of the day. It's, it's pretty bad. Yeah, and fortunately, it also fell on my Friday, so I oh, was off the next couple of days after that. Yeah, that's really good then. And uh, that, that next day after that, it was kind of rough, and it was you know it was pretty much the only thing I could think about is everything that had happened. And to give you an update, the officer is doing fine. Um, he was shot one time, but it was in a non-critical area and everything, so he he's doing okay. But um, so I'd had some trouble sleeping, and I'd woken up. It was about four o'clock in the morning, and they had paged out saying they needed overtime for you know first shift. And so I said, you know what, it'd probably be a good thing for me to get back in there, take a few phone calls that way. The next time I have to go into work, I'm not, you know, dreading it or anything like that. Yeah. So that, that's what I did. I went in and I had, you know, took, sat on phones for four hours, took some phone calls. And uh, it was pretty clear to me, like we were saying earlier, that everything happens for a reason because it was just about halfway through the little four-hour period I was taking phone calls when they... A guy called in and said that his phone had called 911 and he was just kind of saying, you know, sorry because he had hung up and he had said that, you know, he was the officer that was shot the other night and it kind of, you know, hit home like, wow, this is why I was supposed to be here today. So I, t I told him, you know, that, that it was me that took the phone call. He kind of realized my voice 
and we talked for 10 or 15 minutes because luckily it wasn't busy. And he passed the phone around. The person who had called in, you know, originally that I'd spoken with was there. And so I talked to her for a while. And um, it was just kind of a very surreal experience when you have somebody saying, you know, hey, thank you for saving my life. You know, it's not something that I've gotten before. You know, other people have gotten, people have come and visited them, you know, when they've had a cardiac event and they've come back and said, hey, you know, thank you so much for all you did for us. But this was the first time that it happened for me and to have been literally the reason I was there was just to, you know, get over that situation was kind of, you know, it really hit home for me and it was very, you know, soothing to, you know, hear that he was okay and everything. Yeah, that's, that is something that, uh, you know, with, with that, I, I can't recall. I mean, I know I've talked to people after they've had things happen to them before. Um, for me, I, I also haven't had anything as far as like someone coming up to the center and, you know, doing things like that after I've helped them out. It's, it's pretty rare that happens. Um, you know, I've seen it happen a couple of times with other employees, but it's just, it's not something that's happened to me. And, you know, I'm, I'm fine with that. I mean, I, I know how many calls I do. I know I do my job good. Um, I know I help a lot of people. So, but yeah, having that type of, I guess, um, closure to a call that's that's actually really really good and it, it helps out with the dispatcher a lot yeah they had um so after that when i enjoyed the rest of my weekend the two days off that we get and uh came back to work and they had our police psychologist we call in the past they were there and we had to do just called a debriefing where the psychologist goes over the you know timeline of events and everybody that was involved with it kind of talks about you know their emotions and how everything went for them and it was good to hear their side of the story because one of the points I brought up is once I sent the call up, I knew I didn't have to worry about, you know, all of that aspect. I knew that the fire department was taking care of it. I knew the police department was taking care of it. So it took it off my shoulders and it it was really, really good. That doesn't happen very often where we have those debriefings and I hope it, you know, starts to become more of a thing because it was definitely very helpful. Yeah. Um, there's not, um, I mean, there's always the option for us to get that, the debriefing like that. Um, but just like I've said in a couple other past episodes, it's something that a lot of dispatchers, we don't want it to happen. I mean, it's, we, we don't want it to affect us. We want to be these big badasses, and, you know, we, we take one bad call. We'll, we'll screw that. I'm, I'm going on to the next one and be done with it. But it can, you know, it, it affects different people different ways. Even dispatchers who's taken thousands and thousands of calls, there's going to be a call sometime that's going to really hit you hard. And, you know, that's, it's just going to happen like that. And, in a case like that, you really do need to have someone there that can talk you through it, make sure that everything's good afterwards. And uh, again, uh, kind of like I was saying earlier on, I, I did ask uh, on a couple different social media things for people to write in about experiences they've had. I actually had one for a, from a former employee. Uh, she wrote me and uh, th- this person went from a dispatcher and ended up going out to the field and being a police officer and then managed to go further than that. And she sent me in a, a story that um, she said that we could use here on the, the show. And I'll, I'll go ahead and read that to you too. Uh, so she was saying that she sat next to a call taker as he answered a 911 call. And at the time I saw my in-laws address on the screen and listened as he asked questions that went mostly un- unanswered as my mother-in-law at the time uh, was having a heart attack. I listened as the fire dispatcher send an ambulance and a fire engine to their house. Uh, then I dispatched an officer to assist rescue as that was all the information 
I was able to put out on the air. And that was kind of a policy type thing. The officers I work with knew me well enough that, and recognized the stress in my voice that not one officer, but five actually responded out that way. Once the ambulance arrived and took my mother-in-law to the hospital, I listened in horror, uh, to them radioing that they had to start, uh, CPR three separate times on the ride to the hospital. The police sergeant who responded to the scene and who also, uh, was a dispatcher once upon a time immediately came to relieve me and took over the radio ordered one of the, one of his officers to drive me to the hospital. Ultimately the mother-in-law didn't make it, but she did survive long enough to tell us how she'd remember how uh, calling this dispatcher for, for help. And she didn't actually talk to this dispatcher that day, but it, did at least make her feel safe thinking that she had and we never had the chance to correct her and looking back i'm glad we allowed her to think that she had called her the dispatcher that day even though she talked to somebody else so we talked in previous episodes about you know taking calls from family members and things like that and it the chances of it are pretty low that it happens especially in a town like nashville because we have so many call takers dispatchers and just so many calls in general that you would have something happen like that. And um, I've said that I've had one happen with me. Um, if anybody out there that knows me, um, and I've talked to about my, my past and everything, when I was young, I lived with my grandparents. And I lived with them until I was, you know, well into uh, after high school even. So uh, after I'd started up there at work, and this was maybe, uh, I'm guessing maybe a couple years after I started, I get a call and I see the address pop up on the, or back then Positron, it's our um, Annie Alley, locate, it's a location of the, lo, um, the call that's coming in. And this is back before cell phones got real big, so everybody still had a landline back then. And anyway, it was my old address. So, you know, I immediately knew that from the start. And when I heard the voice on the phone, it was my, my grandfather. And he says, you know, uh, Brandon, uh, your grandmother needs an ambulance. She's, she's in a bad way. And, you know, I, I didn't take the whole dispatcher route immediately. I was more concerned. I'm like, oh, well, what's wrong? What's going on? And he, she, she, he says, well, you know, she needs an ambulance. She's uh, having some heart problems, some chest pain, and just kind of keeps going from there. And um, I had to kick myself back into dispatcher mode. That way I could start an ambulance out there. So I started up the questioning we do, went through all those, got the, the ambulance started. And immediately after that, I had to tell my supervisor what happened. And they said, yeah, if you need to go, just go ahead and go. So I, I left at that point and got over there just as they were loading her in the ambulance. And, I, and luckily, I lived pretty close to our center at that point. And from there, we I followed into the hospital and all that kind of stuff. And... Um, I mean, she ended up not making it from the hospital. She was in the hospital for three or four days after the call and everything, and they they couldn't keep her alive. But it's just one of those things that, like I said, you you may have that happen to you. If you're a dispatcher out there listening, you have to be prepared. It's not going to be always some random person calling in that you have no connection with. There's going to be times that you do have that connection with someone, and you're not sure how that's going to affect your ability to take the call either because sometimes you're going to need to actually make that call and 
uh, you know, start them in ambulance, start them in police, whatever. It might have to happen that way. Yeah, we've definitely established that when it comes to family, it's definitely hits closer to home and it takes the call from, you know, something that might be minor to a lot more serious, you know, just because of who's involved. I don't have any family here in Nashville, so I haven't had any of those calls, luckily, but I had a call that comes to mind when we're on this subject, and it was a woman called in. She was absolutely frantic, gave her address, and it was hard to understand. I had to have her repeat it several different times, and eventually determined that her son had had a seizure. So we get the ambulance started. You know, she's freaking out the whole time, asking questions and everything, so I explained to her there's not, you know, a whole lot we can do. Gave her some basic instructions on how to, you know, treat him until they get there but I said it's just mainly they're gonna have to get there and give him some medication and he'll have to recover from it and it it made her calm down a whole lot and towards the end of the call I told her I was like this is the first one he's had I understand that he's he's even an adult at that point so it's kind of new for her and so I told her if this happens again you just got to remember the most important thing is just to be calm and get, get you ready with your address you know and just answer the questions and go through the motions And I was just really hoping that would stick with her. So if it did happen again, that she would, you know, do the right thing and it would be a whole lot easier for her. Well, it kind of came full circle about, I think it was maybe a week or two after that. I got a call. I uh, recognized the address right away. And same woman again said her son was having a seizure. She was super calm, answered all the questions. And towards the end of the call, once uh, I think the paramedics were walking in the door, I just kind of told her, I was like, I'm glad that you remembered, you know, what had happened last time and everything. And she said that was the first thing I thought of when he started to have another seizure is that, you know, what, what you had told me and how to handle it. And that stuck with her. And it was kind of one of those, you know, aha moments where, you know, you realize that you really do make a difference in these people's lives, even though it seems like a small thing to you. Yeah. And, you know, that that's something we've uh, talked about kind of in the past as well, that, if you can, it, it, I know it's hard with some calls. It's damn near impossible on some calls to, to try to keep yourself calm, answer the questions. Everything goes quicker if if that happens, and that's a good, for instance, on something like that that you were able to uh, convey that the first time it happened, and the second time, second time she called in, I'm sure everything just kind of rolled a lot easier. And being because of that, like help gets there a lot faster because you're able to get the, the call dispatched out quicker. Yeah, definitely. Um, it, especially with seizure calls, those of you dispatchers out there, if you use EMD, you know how annoying the seizure call can be. Luckily, they've updated it in this latest update, but before it took some time before it would recommend the call being dispatched. So it was very important to get through those questions, and there was a little test you had to do in the middle of it before it even, you know, start them out there if the seizure had stopped. And so it was uh, very imperative that she answer those questions quickly so we could get through and get them started just based on the policies we have to follow. Yeah. And with me, I, as far as the, the policies, I, I kind of go against them sometimes to, to get the, the call out a little bit quicker. And that was one that I always did. Um, I skipped some of the stuff that, that was, I mean, really unnecessary what I thought anyway, this is of course years ago, like I said, before the update that we had and everything, um, if somebody's having a seizure, we're going to send out, the, the paramedics and the, the fire truck, they're going emergency anyway. Uh, there's no reason to ask all these other questions. They, they just pretty much have to know there's a seizure going on and they get going. Luckily now it's changed to where that actually does happen. We still a- ask the questions and I, you know, even back then I still ask the questions. I would just send up a appropriate code for it and get it going. That way we it cut out, you know, a few extra seconds and 
you know, with a seizure, it's typically not life-threatening immediately. Uh, there could be some underlying reason, but but as far as you know, from the dispatch end, actually having to have someone go out there and, and potentially, I'll say, not necessarily go out there, but before they can actually get there, the person passing away or having some sort of other trouble, it's it's not quite as likely with a seizure. But anyway, it's I still feel a lot better when I get somebody on the way faster, at least get them on the way and then update them while they're on the way out there instead of, you know, waiting for the call. And like I said, this is mostly years ago when this was uh, done, but gladly they have uh, updated that software to where we can get them out there quicker. So on a lot of episodes, we've tried to finish with something kind of funny and, um, you know, the calls we've talked about tonight, they, we obviously haven't played any calls, but we've talked about some calls that, you know, kind of hit hard, uh, with, with us, I mean, as individuals and some of our, uh, people that listen to the show out there that are also dispatchers as well. Um, but we like to try to finish everything up with something a little bit more funny. And I had a, a call. This was when me and when I was on, uh, the police dispatch, I was on the radio and, uh, it, it just so happened that the, the officer that this happened with, he was, a you know, he was a, a decent friend of mine. We'd hung out a couple of times and, um, you know, this, this guy, I'll try to describe, I'm not going to say his name or anything, but you know, I'm, I'm a big guy. I'm, I'm probably six foot four and I'm built kind of like a freaking, almost like an NFL lineman. That's a little bit out of shape, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> But I'm still that in there. Yeah, I'm, but I'm still a pretty big guy, and you know this officer, he was in like freaking perfect shape. He worked out all the time, lifted weights, and he was about this, not quite the same height as I was, but he was very well built. So he, you know, really good shape. And uh, on the the radio, he had uh, checked out on a 40p, which is a suspicious person. And apparently, like he's, I think he probably said this as he was rolling to a stop in his car, said, show me out here on a 40P. And probably within, I don't know, maybe 15 or so seconds after he checked out on it, he starts yelling, I've got one running. And when I say yelling, I mean, he's, you know, really almost top of his lungs. He gives out a description and, you know, he's like, it's, it, you know, it's a male wearing a, this kind of clothes, this type of pants, a shirt, whatever like that. He's given out all good information, so I'm, I'm grateful for that. He's given a direction of flight, so meaning which which way he's running, what street he's on, all that kind of stuff. It's all good information. I, uh, I immediately take the air and everything and say, uh, repeat, and try to get him officers in route, which we get officers in route. Um, and then probably about 30 or 45 seconds into the, the foot chase, he says, I've lost him over here at the street. Um, you know, he turned a corner and I, I don't see him. I'm not sure where he went to. So they, they had officers out there looking all around for him. They never did find this guy. Couldn't find him at all. So, you know, we're, we're sitting, I'm sitting there on the, the radio and I'm thinking, well, you know, this, this guy's got to be, you know, some sort of a freaking track runner or something like that. And, uh, you know, as I'm sitting there thinking that my phone rings and, the uh, <laughs> it's a another police officer calling in, and uh, it's one of his friends and a, a guy also knew. And he says, um, I, "I need you to re-air the suspect description on that." And um, I said, "Okay, that's not a problem." He goes, "But before you do that, why don't you get the actual suspect description from this officer, the other officer, the one that was chasing him?" 
I said, what do you mean? He goes, just do yourself a favor and get the full description. Ask him for the full description. So I said, okay. So I immediately keyed up the radio and I said, um, can, I was going to go ahead and repeat the, the suspect for all the officers. Can you give me a full description of the suspect? And he says, yes, he was a, a male. He give, gives me the, you know, he's male, he's race, all that kind of stuff. Uh, clothing description. And he says, and he was about 60 years old and he was last seen carrying his oxygen tank behind him. <laughs> so there's a 60 year old guy that had literally was on oxygen that outran this huge officer that was in really good shape. I'm not sure how he did it. It's probably, you know, he's probably on crack or something. I don't know, but, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it, I thought it was really funny and it kind of, uh, I'm sure it probably embarrassed the officer a little bit too. And I'm not sure if he's out there listening, but you, you know exactly who I'm talking about because <laughs> you're the one chasing this guy. And you couldn't catch him when you were in peak shape of your life, and uh, you know a sixty-year-old guy with that was on oxygen outran you. I can't say anything. I'd probably get outran too uh, nowadays anyway. But yeah, I've, I've never been a fast runner, but that's uh, I couldn't stop laughing after that. I told everybody I could. <laughs> <laughs> I can. Uh, I'll piggyback off of that kind of, um, and then I'll share a story that uh, you and I both worked an event once, but. Uh, I was working, I think I was training still on the midnight shift, and a guy called in saying, hey, I just showed up at my business here to do a couple things late at night, and there's this gray Toyota Camry sitting in the parking lot, and there's a male white, probably about 300-something pounds sitting inside, and he's just kind of watching me, and I was just wondering if you could have somebody come check it out. So I get the call of my pending, and I let the sergeant know I didn't have anybody available, and um, he goes, okay, and then one of my detectives keys up. And he's like, that's going to be me, but if you don't mind, let the complainant know that I'm closer to about 200-something pounds. <laughs> that's pretty good. So uh, I call this guy back and let him know, and uh, it was kind of a good laugh. And he's like, let him know I said sorry. So uh, I keyed up on the radio, and I was like, hey, he, he apologizes. He'll get it better next time. And he goes, thanks. He hurt my feelings real bad. <laughs> that's, that's actually really good. <laughs> But um, he was very thankful that the detective was sitting there watching his business at night, though. Um, it was just uh, one of those funny funny moments that you have to take the opportunity with to have a laugh on the radio. Oh, yeah. And to go on to the next call that you were uh, talking about, I, I remember this one, too. Um, it was a messed up call from start to finish. And it's, I mean, it was a marathon call, like really a marathon call because of how long, how it developed. Uh, there was... There was no quick hit to it. It was just one thing right after the other, and it just kept going and kept going, and I, I was amazed at it. But, I, Brad, I'll let you take the kind of details of it. It's It, it was pretty good. Yeah, we, we were on the same shift for two years, but I can only remember a handful of times where we were actually sat next to each other on a police radio. But yeah. this was, from my memory, one of the first times, and we were on t our two busiest radios we have on the day shift. And, um, I got a call. I don't remember exactly how it started out as, but a guy was having some sort of issue with his boss or former boss or something. I can't remember if he pulled a weapon on him or just threatened him. It was something yeah, serious. Though. I think he did pull a weapon on him. Yeah. It was to the point where he called him and said like, Hey, this guy just left in this vehicle. And so I had officers on the way out there. I think they made it on scene, made contact with the original victim and had gotten the rundown of that. And then I get a carjacking call. And they said the suspect left behind this vehicle, which was eerily similar to my suspect description on my person with a weapon call that I had just put out. So we kind of thought that was interesting. 
And a few minutes later, we get, I think it was another carjacking call where he had stolen another car. So this was all related. This suspect, I don't know what was going through his mind that day, but he went and threatened his boss. Then he carjacked a car, I'm assumingly knowing that the police had his vehicle description. Carjacked another car and went into the precinct that Brandon was working. Yeah. At this point, I think we had gone through every single car crash call and reckless driver thing we had trying to find this guy because there was a pretty good vehicle description and we were just trying to make sure we weren't missing something because we had a couple hit and runs going on at the time. And Yeah, it, it was a full-on trail of destruction from start to finish with it. And so we kind of had a path where he was going. And then Brandon gets his first call on it, which is a carjacking on the uh, Percy Priest Dam that we have. Yeah, and he actually wrecked. He, he was trying to drive across the dam, wrecked into a car, jumped out, and then carjacked somebody else for their car. Yeah, and for the life of me, I can't remember how it ended. All I know is I, I'm pretty sure he got away. I don't remember us catching him. I don't remember that, but it, we very well could have. But the last thing I remember is him in that, doing that carjacking on the Percy Priest Dam. And it was probably about half an hour after everything had settled down. One of the detective keys up and he goes, what's the report number from Percy Priest? And Brandon responds with, um, I'll, I'll let him just give you what he responded with. To this. Yeah, I, I, because it was, uh, you know, there was a Percy Priest Dam, which is a, uh, a dam that blocks up the Percy Priest Lake here in Nashville. And it was literally, it was, we have a roadway that runs over top of the dam to give you an idea of, of that. And that's where that wreck happened, the carjacking, all that kind of stuff. So he asked for the report number, and I said, the damn number is, and then I gave it to him. <laughs> and, and he couldn't get in trouble for this because it was pretty valid because there was about 18 complaint numbers associated with this guy, so it was good to distinguish which one he was asking for. Yeah, we, it was literally one of those that you we, uh, to distinguish it, just like, just like you said, you almost had to say the damn number. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, we'll finish it up for that uh, with with that call. And uh, just like uh, all the rest of the times, uh, follow us on social media. Uh, tweet with us on uh, Twitter if you can. Tell us you listened to this episode. Uh, we're at, uh, at Music City 911 on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, try to, if you want to support the show, if you, uh, if you can, go on to Patreon. We're also Music City 911 on there. Uh, throw a couple bucks at us just to help us out with the kind of overhead of the show and everything and uh join us on the podcast discussion discussion group on facebook and uh throw some questions you got some questions about our calls we've had tonight or any of the other calls we've had there's lots of other dispatchers from all over there we can help you out with things that may have happened in the past or if you got your own questions about us something that's happened with you you know come on and do that but brett it was a good having you out as guests again tonight i mean i I think this is a uh pretty damn good time that we had with, <laughs> with this episode and uh you know i hope to have you back on again sometime and yeah and we'll we'll just have to do the same thing again maybe throw on a couple of other calls with it yeah there's no telling where the world's going to be in that time what the flavor of the month is going to be for what disaster we're going to be going through so i'm sure it'll be an interesting uh discussion at that time too yeah it's it's never changing but anyway guys i, I hope you enjoyed listening tonight for Music City 911, I'm Brandon Hall. And I'm Brett Sharp. Y'all have a good one.